Isn't that song wonderful? It just makes you feel comfortable. It just <laughs> makes you feel good. I love that song. It's so good for us. Well, we're glad to have you two back with us this evening. This is our uh, fourth part in our series. We call it the Chair Series. I would really like to come up with a better name than that, but <laughs> I don't know what else to call it because this is what we're doing. We've moved the pulpit and we're sitting in chairs. Somebody suggests once you call it the bar chairs because well, these are. I said that doesn't sound too good. And somebody suggests once you call it the high chair series. Now that sounds even worse. So, so I just call it chair series. And so <laughs> here it is. And so we're glad you could be with us. Really, have gotten a lot of good feedback from this, and we really are thankful for that. More than anything else, we hope that what we're talking about in this conversational mode is helpful. Uh, we live in a difficult world, and things do not seem to be getting any better. And when culture and our faith intersect, oftentimes there's clashes, and it's just kind of hard to know what to do. And so our series has been titled, I Know What the Bible Says, But. And our faith is not a piece of pie. You know, some people look at life kind of like a big pie, and here's one piece, and here's another piece, so here's my work, and here's my home, and here's my church, and they have nothing to do with each other. Uh, that's not the concept of the Bible. Uh, your faith involves what you do Monday morning, whether at school or at work. And principles like integrity and ethics and generosity run in there. Uh, your faith involves what you do when you're on the sports field, playing fair and being honest and being a good sportsman. Those all are some principles that come along with our faith as we think about that. And, and faith intersects with politics. And we're not going to tell you who to vote for, but it does. And we need to understand, and, and hear me carefully on this, the New Testament definition of a Christian is not a white conservative Republican. I think a lot of people think that is a Christian. A Christian, according to the New Testament, is someone who's denied themselves, taken up the cross, and followed Jesus. That's the concept of a Christian. And so that's kind of what we need to look at. So this evening, as we continue this series, we want to talk about this idea of privilege. Some people seem more privileged than others. Now, when we look at this from a biblical standpoint, we know that Jesus Christ died for every single person. The Bible says in the book of Matthew that God sends a rain upon the just and the unjust. We understand that uh, when Peter went to the house of Cornelius, he said that God is not a respecter of persons. We understand those general concepts. But when we look in life, it looks like sometimes people are privileged. It looks like some people have an advantage. It looks like some people are ahead of the game, whether we talk about talents or their background or different things. That has caused a lot of people in our current times to be upset and to point fingers that you are privileged and I am not. It has caused some people to be angry with God because they feel like they came on the short end of the stick of life. It's caused some people that want nothing to do with God or God's people simply because those things have happened. Now, society, as it tries to deal with things like this, and they usually get things wrong, is trying to push for equity. Everybody is going to be equal. Some politicians are uh, advocating we're all going to have the same paycheck. No matter where you work or what your experience, everyone gets the same amount of money. We want everyone to be equal. In some school systems, they do not give grades like A, B, C, D, because Jason get an A and I get a C, I'd go home discouraged. So we're going to just say either you pass or you need to work on that a little bit better. In some 
sport leagues today. Everybody gets a trophy. There is no winner. There is no loser. Because we don't want the losers to feel bad. We want everything to be equal. Now, a hundred some years ago, as this thought carried over to religion, the thought was universalism. And that was debated and debated all over the country in the 1800s. Universalism is the idea that everybody is saved regardless. Regardless of what you believe, what you do, everybody is saved. And so what we're going to talk about this evening is this idea of equity and privilege. And try to look at it from both sides of the standpoint and try to see some things that the Bible teaches along this line. You got things you want to start with or want to just I, I jump? I think you have framed it well. My, my one concern, and I would suggest to you your biggest concern ought to be that we not tune out God. It sure does seem to me a, a lot of people when they begin thinking down this line, this line, aren't some more privileged than others, that what that leads to is, I'm going to tune out Christianity. I'm going to tune out the Bible. I'm going to tune out uh, whatever Christians have to say. And that is the wrong way, obviously, of dealing with whatever frustrations we yeah, have. And, and what they do is, okay, here's somebody and... He can throw a football 100 yards, and I can throw it two feet. So God, God doesn't like me. And they just shut the door. And that's some things we need to talk about. So let's, let's just jump to our questions. That's what we do each time. We, we have questions. Jason, I know what the questions are. I don't know how he's going to answer, and he doesn't know how I'm going to answer, but we're just going to do this. So the first question is, in the parable of the talents, Matthew 25, you might turn over there. Jesus, parable of the talents, uh, the servants were not given the same amount. One servant was given five talents, another servant was given two talents, and one servant was given one talent. And in that question, is that fair? I mean, in our spirit of equity, why weren't they all given the exact same amount? This is Jesus' story. So what was Jesus trying to say there? So let's do just a little bit of reading. It's a longer parable. We won't take the time to read it all. But Matthew 25, verse 14. For it will be like, and Jesus is speaking of the kingdom of heaven. He is in the, the, the shadow of the cross, essentially, at this point. In the city of Jerusalem, Passover is just around the corner. He knows what is about to happen. He is speaking about the kingdom of heaven. And he says in verse 14, It will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one to each according to his ability. Then he went away. And he goes on to describe how the one who had received five talents went at once, traded with them, made five talents more, so also the one with two talents. Verse 18, the one who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, in verse 18, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And the parable goes on from there. But this idea of, of fairness, of equity, first of all, I, I would point out, this is a parable. It is very important when we are reading Scripture that we appreciate the genre of Scripture, the type of Scripture, the kind of literature that we are reading. We spend a good amount of time this morning in the book of Proverbs, a book full of wise principles. They are not 
absolute promises like you insert a quarter into this slot and automatically this sort of thing is going to happen. They are, are just wise principles. There's a difference between reading the book of Proverbs and the book of Joshua or Joshua and Revelation. This is a parable. And so we need to appreciate the fact that Jesus is trying to make a much larger point but it touches on this idea where a lot of people in 21st century particularly western culture are asking well is that fair and could i just suggest from the very beginning of of this discussion that i do not want god to give me what is fair and you should not either because if God gives me what I deserve, that is bad. the worst <laughs> possible scenario. Questions of, is it fair? You, you might remember from Galatians chapter 6 and the 14th verse of the chapter, Paul says, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That ought to be the mindset of every Christian. You brought it up earlier, what a Christian is. A, a disciple of Jesus has been crucified to the world and the world has been crucified to him or to her. And so what I boast in is not what I feel like I deserve or somehow what I have earned. We are all, regardless of the culture, regardless of background, regardless of race, we are all being called to reorient our lives around the cross. And when we do that, one other verse along these lines, Go back a little before Matthew 25 to Matthew chapter 20, and I'll, I'll remind you of another parable of Jesus. This is that parable of the laborers in the vineyard. Again, Jesus describing the kingdom of heaven, Matthew chapter 20 and verse 1. It's like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard, and, and he agrees to give them a denarius, right? A day's wage, and so... One works all day and one works three-fourths of the day, let's say. One works half the day. One works, for simple terms, uh, just a, an hour in the day. And the time comes where the master returns and he's going to give a, a denarius to the first ones that he hired. And, and he starts giving the same amount to everybody. Well, now this is, <laughs> this is the opposite of what maybe bothers some of us about the parable of the talents. But I want you to listen. Matthew chapter 20, verse 14. Particularly the second statement. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? We are dealing with the Lord of the universe. I do not deserve anything good from him because I have failed to acknowledge him, failed to honor him as God. I deserve every ounce of wrath for eternity. 
So we need to be very careful asking from a position of entitlement, well, is that fair? It is not up to me. It is up to the master to do what he sees fit. And I think uh, if you had a brother or sister, that pretty much answers the question. Life's not fair. <laughs> okay. I mean, you had a brother or sister. They could, they could do things different than you could do. They had different talents than you could do. You know, Acts 17, verse 26 says that God has made from one nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times, the boundaries of their habitations. Why is it some have athletic ability, some doesn't? That's the answer of God. Why is it some have this great insight, others don't? That's God. Why can some people just fix anything? Other people don't even know what a screwdriver is. That, that, that's, that's the gifts given by God. And sometimes we want, we want them to be equal, but God has given and wired us and put us where he wants us to be. All right, so let's begin to look at that in a, a variety of different dimensions. The spirit of equity, as, as you described earlier, would allow anyone to be in the leadership role of the church, for instance. Anyone to preach. And yet, it doesn't take very long reading, particularly in the New Testament, to figure out that God is leading us in a different direction. How can that be fair? First of all, we don't follow culture. We don't follow the spirit of equity. We follow the New Testament. And when the New Testament and culture are at odds, we line up with the Bible. That's always been the answer. And culture changes. It has always changed. It's, it's very fluid and changes all the time. But, but let's, let's look at some principles in our Bible to begin with. And why don't you go ahead and throw up the next question. I think all the right. next question is very similar yeah, to this. Yeah, does the Bible teach that men and, and women, women are, are equal? equal? Yeah, let, let's, let's, look at, let's put two or three principles up here. Go to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Here in this section where Peter is talking about wise up through verse 6. Verse 7, he addresses husbands. 1 Peter 3, verse 7. You husbands, he says, likewise live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel since she is a woman and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Other versions will use a, a joint heir. Now, weaker vessel, right there it says that they're not equal. No, no. He, he's talking about how you treat. I know a lot of wives could be up their husbands. Okay, That's nothing to do with the strength here. It, it deals with how you're going to approach her, how you're going to treat her. Okay. On my deck is some outside furniture. It rains on it, it snows on it, it stays outside all the time. My couch is inside. Okay. We don't eat on our couch. Okay. Why is it special? He's talking about how you treat somebody. Okay. Now, another passage. Okay. Go with me to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 3. And what we're seeing here in these first two principles, we're seeing that from one standpoint, men and women are equal in God's eyes. God loves them equally. God's salvation's for them equally. They're considered joint heirs. Here in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free man. Free man. There's neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. So in one sense, we either belong to Jesus or we don't. We don't have a different exclusion. Well, I am a male Christian. I am a female Christian. I am a Jewish Christian. I am a Greek Christian. No. He says in Christ, you're all one. You're equal. So in one sense, when you think about this question, does God treat us equally? The answer is yes. But then there's another sense, which we talk about position. Take your Bible and go with me to the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 11. Position or role has nothing to do with ability, nothing to do with intelligence, nothing to do with strength. 
but there's, sense, uh, there's a sense of order in God's kingdom. So in the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 11 and in verse 3, he says, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, the man is the head of every woman, and God is the head of Christ. Let's flip this backwards. God is the head of Christ. That means God is superior to Jesus. No, no. Book of Philippians said that they were equal, and Jesus came to earth. But in the roles they were playing, Jesus came to earth to be the Savior. Does not mean that God is superior to Jesus. Man is the head of woman. That means man is the boss, man is better than woman. No, it doesn't mean that. It means there's a role, position. Not everyone can sit at the Oval Office at the same time. Okay? Not everyone can be the CEO of the company at the same time. There's different roles and different positions. And so, so when, when you think about the leadership in the church, we think about what the New Testament says, who preaches, who leads the congregation. It's about position that God has designated. Not about culture, not about which one's better. Well, I think a woman could do a better job than a man. Well, I'm sure they could. People have asked me for years, was anybody in my family a preacher? I said, my mama, she always preached to me. <laughs> but she never stood behind the pulpit. She never stood behind the pulpit because she understood position. So, so when we read this passage, it does not mean that women are inferior to men. It does not mean that Jesus is inferior to the Father. It's just that there's different roles the wisdom of God has played, and this is what we have to see and appreciate. Many of us in our Building Blocks course of studies today, you, you let us in looking at patterns and the author of life has established patterns in a variety of different ways for us to follow for our good for good order for the sake of boundaries a variety of different things and it is a question of whether or not we trust him as the author of life to exercise authority over our lives that's it so so don't take away from this that okay in, in god's kingdom there there's this descending line and at the very bottom is a woman that that's not god's idea and as we three see throughout the scriptures it was women who first went to the tomb it was women who were supporting jesus do not think that they're inferior because that's not what the bible teaches but there are roles and we have to appreciate what god has said next question as we go through this as uh, we think about this, the principle of submission. And we've kind of read about that in, in some of these passages. It's hard for people to grasp, especially in this culture of equity and equality. How does that fit in with what we believe? Philippians chapter 2, if you'd like to turn over there, is what immediately came to my mind. You've brought out from 1 Corinthians the Father and the Son, the role that Jesus played. And I think Philippians chapter 2 takes it uh, even a practical step further, giving us a little more of a, a human, fleshly perspective on this. I want to begin reading in verse 1 because I think it, it so naturally ties together. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. 
Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Submission is all over the Bible. Submission is what we are all expected to do. And Philippians 2 is valuable because it is showing us Christ is not asking anyone, Jew, Gentile, male, female, rich, poor, slave, free, whatever you want to talk about. He is not asking anyone to do anything that he himself has not first done. And how much more extraordinarily awesome is that in that he was not simply in human form like us. He was equal to God. He is deity. He has always been. He is. He always will be. And yet he took on human form, humbling himself. And now that is the basis on which we are told as Christians, be encouraged in Christ. Don't seek meaning and validation and fulfillment from secular culture. Seek encouragement in Christ. Seek comfort from the love of Christ. Participate in the Spirit. Uh, uh, propagate affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind. Have the same love. Being in full accord and of one mind. Well, that goes, the only way that happens is, goes back to that pattern. I listen to what God has said. And, and submission is hard for all of us. But all of us are being called to, you remember what Jesus says in Matthew 11, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, and I will give you rest. We're being called to trust the one who prayed in the garden, not my will, but yours be done. He's revealed that will. It's up to us to submit ourselves to it. Turn over to Ephesians 5. Usually when we hear the word submission, the first thing we think of is a wedding, and the preacher's going to say that to the wives, and everyone's kind of cringing, okay, this old-fashioned telling the women to be submissive to the husband. But, but there's a verse we often overlook in Ephesians 5. Right before this long section about marriage, and he'll say in verse 22, wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. Look at verse 21. Ephesians 5, verse 21, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. That's all of us. All of us are submissive. Submission is an attitude. It is a spirit. The opposite of submission is to be a rebel. You can't tell me what to do. I'm going to do what I want to do, and I don't care. I don't care what the Bible says. I don't care what the government says. I don't care what you say. It's my life. I do what I say. And we've already had a lesson on this about it's my body. You can't tell me what to do with my body. Well, yeah, we can if you're following Jesus. So submission is a spirit. It's an attitude. 
It's a team player. And it's the idea that we're going to get along with one another. And the one who set the example first was Jesus. Yeah. So that is out of step, out of rhythm, out of harmony with a whole lot of what we see in culture. I'm a disciple of Jesus. I see people not only marching in the other direction, but just adamantly opposed to so much of what we have seen from Scripture this evening. How should I treat them? And again, the Bi- as we've been saying all through this series, uh, the Bible flies in the face of modern culture. Uh, the modern culture makes up their own God. They're going to make up a God that's going to let them do what I want them to do. My God's not going to have words like submission. My God doesn't have words like obedience. Doctrine's not found by my God. And so what society's done is they made their own idol. But when we, when we look at the Bible, we follow Jesus, we try to please the Father, we're going to come at crossroads with family and friends and co-workers who are adamant against us. So what do we do? Well, we know what we don't do. We don't avoid them. If Jesus went to Samaria, a group of people very opposite of who he was. We don't blast them. We don't go up to people and say, you know, what you're saying is wrong, you're dumb, you're going to hell. You never say that. Because number one, that's not your right, it's not your position, and that's wrong. You don't do that. We apply the golden rule. What you do is you talk. You listen. You try to help. Turn with me to John chapter 8. And in John 8, we find early in the morning a contrast. Early in the morning, as the chapter begins, Jesus is in the temple teaching. Early in the morning... While Jesus is teaching, a woman is having sexual relations with somebody she's not married to. She's committing adultery. I believe this was a setup. The Jews found her, brought her to the temple, wanted to know if Jesus would stone her. What should we do? And this is where in that long discourse Jesus has, if you're without sin, cast the first stone, they all leave. And so it's just Jesus and this woman. Verse 11. And... He said in verse 10, straighten up, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go your way. That's not the end of the sentence. Go your way. From now on, sin no more. Jesus was offering her grace. Jesus was offering her the kingdom. Jesus was offering her the good news of the gospel. What do I do when I, when I, when I come across with somebody? I try to show them there's a better way. Follow Jesus. You do it in kindness. You do it in hope. You listen. You talk. But those are the things we do. And, and again, I think a lot of that is, is just what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? That John 8 conclusion is so powerful because it identifies the problem. And I think that's where a lot of our confusion, a lot of our frustration... A lot of the wrangling that we see is because we're not clearly seeing the problem. The problem is not different races. The problem is not different backgrounds or different languages. The problem is not fundamentally different socioeconomic statuses or or things like that. Humanity's biggest problem is the problem of sin. And we have a very clever adversary 
who entraps all of us one way or another in sin and then hides the trap so that we don't even see what the real problem is and then convinces us that we, as we're caught in the trap together, are actually the enemies of each other. What, what has he done? He's trapped us. He has, has gotten us in a way that we don't even recognize and he's turned us as image bearers against each other until we see that the problem fundamentally is sin we're not going to make very much progress. And Jesus told her, go and sin no more. So our next question, uh, so Jason, somebody comes up to you and say, you're privileged. How do you respond to that? Let's go back to Acts chapter 17. Roger referenced it earlier. I would try, first of all, to ask. You, you mentioned listening earlier. I think a lot of us would do well to recognize we have two ears, one mouth, and before we just come right back with what much of culture is coaching us to come back with, listen. Where's that question coming from? And then maybe ask with the intention of listening a little more, well, what do you mean by privileged? And there is, is no doubt about the fact, if we are talking about privilege from the standpoint of blessing, we are privileged in this country, at this point in human history, beyond wildest imagination. I mean, can you imagine if Caesar himself walked out with you this evening to the parking lot? and saw what you got in in order to travel home. Do you think that he would regard you as privileged? The ruler of the greatest empire that the world had ever seen to this point in the New Testament. If Herod walked into your house and you showed him this giant box in your kitchen, first of all, the idea of having a kitchen in your house would blow this man's mind. But then you show him this box that keeps your food cold. Or, I mean, you referenced in your Building Blocks video today, indoor plumbing. I mean, something that we so easily take for granted. Do you not realize that the richest person on the planet in the days of Jesus, would look at the most common middle-class American today and say, I can't imagine having what you have. This is such a relative term, depending on where we live in history, where, what, what culture we are a part of. The safest, as far as I can understand it, the safest way to begin that dialogue. And what's the, what's the goal here? Not to win an argument. The goal is to shine as the light of the world and to draw people to Jesus. Okay? Safest way to do that is to take them back to the source. Back to the author of life. However much you think you do not have in common with, I don't care who it is, in this country, I mean someone on the polar opposite of everything that you believe politically or everything you enjoy socioeconomically, it is not a greater chasm 
than what the Apostle Paul was facing in Athens in Acts 17. And what does he do? He begins to find common ground with it. You know, I see what you have here. And I'd like to talk with you about a God maybe you've never heard of before. And, I mean, we'll just notice the briefest of segments. In verse 24 of Acts 17, the God who made the world. What a great place to begin. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind. What a powerful connection to make. All mankind, life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Well, what really matters? We've identified where we've all come from, and we've identified what makes us all in common. What really matters? What's the grand purpose of life? That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Listening. Studying the people around me. And remembering what the real goal is here. Is absolutely key. We'll take it maybe a step further in a little while. You know, I, I was in India several years ago to preach, and you've seen these big, big palm trees. There was a guy who had two giant palm leaves, like a tent, and he had a towel underneath it, and that was his house. That was his house. Very, very poor. Now, what the culture wants us to say is, because you're privileged and I not, then you have to give to me, so we're equal. But that's not, but there's some things you cannot do that on. You cannot do that with talent. You cannot do that with health. You, you know, you've got better health than I do, then, then give me some of your health. You can't do that. And so that leads us to this next question here. And that's, go ahead. So how, okay, I, I, here you are, uh, uh, an American who has traveled over to India. You see someone like that living under two palm leaves. How should we handle our privileges we need number one realize the blessings come from God that should make us thankful makes us thankful and then we we need to use them in a responsible way um, because we have in this country more than those in other countries who do not what culture is really doing is making a lot of people selfish that's not God's answer we need to be generous we need to help where we can we need to do what we can but but all of this again it, it falls in under this line of God has given certain people certain things. Uh, to whom much is given, Luke says, much is required. And so there comes a responsibility with our privilege. Uh, you have a certain amount of knowledge, you need to use it for the kingdom of God. You've got certain blessings, you need to use it for God. Turn over to Mark 14, and I think uh, is this next one on next question up there too. How can we use our blessings and talents yeah, let's for just the kingdom of God? Yeah, let's slide these two together here, yeah. okay? Because they're very similar. Mark 14 and verse... Eight. We, you know, Mark 14, Jesus is about ready to go to the cross. 
there is a woman who comes and she takes an alabaster vial of costly perfume. I believe Luke's account says, uh, no, no, down here in verse 5, it could have been sold for 300 denarii. A denarii was a day's wage. Okay? 300 denarii is a year's salary. Think about what you make in a year. 50,000, 100,000. Can you imagine having some perfume in your house that costs that much? Okay? This is not every day to spice it on and go out to the store. This is saved for two reasons. Either someone's wedding or someone's funeral. Very, very rare use. She poured it on Jesus. The disciples, predominantly Judas, rebuked her and got on her saying this could have been sold, given to the poor. That's equity. Let's, let's just even this out. Here we got some poor people. Let's raise them up. Jesus responds, the poor you always have with you. You don't always have me. But look at verse 8, what he says about this woman. She has done what she could. Now, she couldn't do everything. She couldn't go to the cross. She couldn't write the Gospels, but she did what she could. That's our response to our privileges, using it for the kingdom of God. You've got an ability to write, use it for the kingdom of God. You've got ability to make songs, use it for the kingdom of God. You've got ability to paint, use it for the kingdom of God. You're, you're, you know no stranger, use it for the kingdom of God. Do what you can do. And I think that's significant as we think about that. Which leads us to, was Jesus privileged? When Roger posed that question, that one made me more than any other stop and, and really think for a minute. But I would remind you of what we read from Philippians chapter 2. He was in the form of God. I mean, that's not privilege as much as identity. This is who he is. He has always been. He is. He always will be. He has all knowledge. He has all powerful. He is all present. But this is what makes what he did so incredible. Because he was born to people who couldn't afford the standard sacrifice that would be offered for a newborn baby. They had to take the clause of the law that if you can't afford a lamb... It doesn't get much cheaper than a pair of turtle doves. Joseph and Mary can't afford a lamb. He is born in a stable. And I don't know when the last time you walked through a stable was. But that is not the lap of luxury. He grew up in what People of the day referred to as, I mean, the backwaters of the world. Uh, he, he came from not just an area of the world that was easily overlooked and often mocked, but people who lived there didn't believe that anything good could come out of his hometown, Nazareth. 
He did not have a great education like so many of the elites of his day. He did not have a family tree that he could look to and lean upon as some sort of a, a, a frail identifier. He was the son of a carpenter. And he was often mocked for where he had come from and the scandalous circumstances surrounding his, his birth and, and the fact that he ha hadn't been taught by a great rabbi and yet he did all of that and changed the world, number one, and dealt with our greatest problems. Which means when he says, deny yourself to me, and do you take up your cross and follow me? He is not talking about a trip to a theme park. He is not promising rainbows and butterflies every step of the way. But he is leading us somewhere he has been. And I think that's such a, a powerful point for us to realize. We are not simply talking about a great teacher, a great miracle worker, even a great prophet. The one who has been in heaven is telling us how to be bound for heaven. But it begins with submitting myself and making him the Lord of every aspect of my being. Our Philippians 2 passage we read says he emptied himself. Yeah. If you empty your pockets, you have nothing in your pockets. He emptied himself. When, people, when he walked on earth, unlike the artist, he did not have a halo above his head. He looked like everyone else. Anybody could go up to him and talk to him. Anybody could say anything. They spit on him. He was acting like one of us, but he was God on earth. Yeah. I think you've got another question for me here. I do. Oh, yes, I do. Okay. <laughs> Unless you want to take it. No, no, I don't. I don't. Okay, how did Jesus treat those who were blessed, not as blessed as others? Yeah. Let's go back here quickly to John chapter 4. Uh, Roger mentioned it earlier. He spent time talking to people that nobody else would spend time talking to. In John chapter 4, he is in the region of Samaria talking to a Samaritan, talking to a woman who is a Samaritan. He sees that woman. His disciples don't really see her. Looking right past her, right through her. It's interesting to me in John chapter 4 and verse 33, the, the disciples have gone into town to get something to eat. You know, they go, they get what they need. They, they probably cringe having to go into a Samaritan city, buying food from Samaritan people. And the disciples, when they hear Jesus say, I have food to eat that you do not know about, what is at the top of their minds is, has anyone brought him something to eat? I mean... Jesus has had one of the most incredible conversations in all of human history. Read it. Read John chapter 4. He sees this woman. He listens to this woman who is so different from him. Completely different experiences in so many different ways. He listens to this woman. He shows cares for, for, for this woman. 
He is teaching us, I believe, and, and throughout the rest of the New Testament, all the way to the heart of the last book of the Bible, we are being invited to realize we are different all over this world, different cultures, and that is a beautiful thing because all of those differences end up before the throne of God where there are people of different tribes and languages and peoples and nations and they have all been gathered by God as his redeemed sons and daughters. That ought to shape how we interact with people who are different from us. See people. Listen to people. Every single person you interact with this week is created in the image of God. Many of them have problems that are foreign to you. Listen. Have the mind of Christ that you're not going to respond from selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, you're going to regard them as more important than you are. You're going to seek not only your own interest, but also their interest. Maybe they are full of a lot of angst, a lot of anger, a lot of bitterness. Well, guess what? Jesus interacted with a lot of people like that. And he saw them. He listened to them. He showed grace to them. And he kept his eye on the goal. The goal is not to prove them that Jews are better than Samaritans. The goal is not to put them, these ignorant people in their place. The goal is not to exalt myself. The goal is to invite them, come to me, and I will give you rest. And the way that call is echoed in the world today is through his people. We are ridiculously blessed. We need to make sure that those blessings don't come to be in the way like they did in the life of that rich man in Luke chapter 16 who has this poor man that is just laying out there day after day after day and nobody gives him anything. And eventually Lazarus dies and he goes to paradise. And that rich man who, pretty privileged, dies and goes to a place of torment because he missed what the point of life is all about. That's it. That's it. So, last one. When someone says, as if, okay, I'm going to close the conversation. I'm not interested in whatever. The Bible, the church, God, you're privileged. You don't understand how hard life can be. What should I say? Okay, I'm going, I'm going to weave this to my invitation. All righty. So, let's turn to the Bible to Luke chapter 4. And, and that's true. I have never buried a child, thank the Lord. I've done the funeral for way too many parents who buried their children. Children are supposed to bury parents, but that doesn't always happen. So I don't know, I, I can't tell you what it feels like. I've never buried a mate. A lot in this room have. So I can't tell you what it's like to lose the love of your life. I've never done that before. I've never been divorced, so don't know the heartache of being divorced. I've, you know, I've never been in jail, 
I visited jails, but I always got out. I never was locked up. I don't know what that's like. And so you'll meet people who say, you don't know what my life is like. And one way, I don't. I don't know your pain, but I do know pain. I have my own stories, and I have pain. And maybe I don't know your struggles, but I've got my own struggles, and I can understand struggles. Maybe not yours, but I've got my own. And so look with me, if you will, in Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, as Jesus is in Nazareth, he opens the Bible up, the Word of God. Isaiah, verse 17, tells us. And he says in verse 18, he quotes this, he reads this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's appointed me to preach the gospel to who? The privileged, the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to who? The privileged, the captives. The recovery of sight to who? The blind. To set free those who? The privileged, the downtrodden. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. No, I may not understand what you're going through. But I know who does. And that's Jesus. And unlike Jesus, I may not be able to help you. I may offer a few words, but my words are shallow and empty. Jesus can really do something for you. And so when people kind of throw that at you to want to end the conversation, you have no idea what my life is like. Sometimes I have to say, you're right. I was telling Jordan Cunningham this past week, when I was in India, I met this guy, and it's just like National Geographic. Basically, he had a towel wrapped around him, you know, a towel on his head, and he's shaking my hand, and he's saying something. I couldn't understand him. And I looked over at the translator and said, what is he saying? He's saying he's a leper, and I'm thinking, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. <laughs> I'm shaking the hands of a leper. I'm going to die. I have no idea what it's like to be a leper. I have no idea what it's like when I drove by and saw that palm tree tent, and that was somebody's home. But I know somebody who understands hurt and sorrow and pain. You read Isaiah 53, it talks about all those things coming to Jesus Christ. Let's turn in your Bible one other passage, the book of Hebrews, chapter 4. And again, this, this helps us as we think about how to help people. We don't have to be on the same level playing ground. Because in a lot of ways, we never will be. Because of talent, experience, background, we, we may never be. What a blessing it is for those of you who grew up and moms and dads were New Testament Christians. You just grew up with some givens. And it was understood where you were going to be every Sunday. There was not discussion. And what a blessing that is. Some of you have come, and, and, and you've come from different backgrounds. And you, you grew up in different concepts of faith that really weren't truth of the Scriptures. Some of you grew up, and your mom and dad never did anything. They never ever took you to church. But here you are. So how can you understand me? How can I understand you? We go to Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So when somebody says, you, you don't have a clue, I know somebody who does, and he can save your soul. You don't understand how hard my life has been. 
You're right, I don't. But I know somebody who can help you, and that's Jesus. You know what struggle I've had for this addiction, this addiction, and this addiction. And I've talked to people like that. And I say, I don't. I don't. I've never been addicted to anything. But I know somebody who understands, and he can help. And what we're trying to say in, in, in this whole lesson, and really this whole series, is we need to point people to Jesus. That is the answer. Understanding what's like, it's hard to. Brother Pulliam's with us this evening. What is it like to have a teenage daughter with cancer? I cannot explain that. I had a daughter who was in a serious car wreck in a helicopter. We weren't sure she was alive. My story is not the same as your story. I don't understand your pain. You understand my pain. But he understands all of our pain. And that's the answer. And so the answer is not finding somebody that, that, that out here somewhere. I've got to find someone who's got the same story I do. You probably won't find that person. But you've got somebody up here who understands and who can help you and get you through grief, get you through worry, get you through sorrow, get you through doubt. That's Jesus Christ. Get you through sin. That's Jesus Christ. And so that's the answer when someone says this to this. You don't understand. I'm sorry I don't. I'm sorry I don't. But I know who does. He's a friend of mine. Can't tell you about him. His name is Jesus. And he does understand. He knows exactly everything that you've done in your life. He's been with you when you didn't even think about that. He's seen you. He's watched you. He has blessed you. Even though you think you're not blessed, he has blessed you, number one, because you've got life right now. Life is a blessing from God. And so that's our thoughts for this, this evening. And, and when we look at this group this evening, we've got a lot of injustice we could say or not injustice but not equal there's a lot of us are not we're, we're not on the same level in lots of ways some of us have got phds in this building some of us just barely finished high school some of us haven't finished high school some of us are starting college some of us have have done this done this some of us have traveled the world some of us having left the state we were born in a lot of differences but we all got one thing in common we all need jesus and Jesus can help every single one of us. He's not going to make the, level, the ground level, but he's going to take you where you are and make you a child of God by forgiving you and giving you hope and getting you to see that you are blessed and to turn those blessings to help other people. That's what God wants you to do. If we can help you in any way, if you're subject to the gospel call, why don't you come as we stand?